Good evening. It is so good to be with everybody tonight. Thankful that people are still able to come out in bad weather and with all this sickness going around. It is truly an encouragement for you to be here. I guess it was about two years ago that I had the first opportunity to, to speak here. And I delivered a lesson that was about five minutes long. It wasn't all that good and it wasn't all that practical. But hopefully, I mean, I'm about to graduate now, so about two years. Hopefully then I'll be able to produce something that may make some sense. But tonight I wanted to take that, that devotional I did almost two years ago and try and make it a little more practical, try and make it a little bit more relatable. And I, I think it's Paul Harvey who said, here is the rest of the story. So tonight, here is the rest of the story. When in the better land, before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If there is any lost soul there who should cry in deep despair, you never mention him to me. You never mention him to me. You helped me not the light to see. You saw me day by day and you knew that I was astray, but you never mentioned him to me. Come to believe that that is one of the saddest songs in our songbook. But I think maybe the sadder reality is that there are so many people, even within the Lord's church, who are going to hear these words on the day of judgment. I know that as I'm gathered in the throne room of God on judgment day and I'm around my friends and my family, my co-workers, I don't want any of them to say, why didn't you tell me about him? But maybe the reason why we don't tell people about what's in this book is because we don't really think evangelism works. And there may be some reasons for that. Maybe it's that we don't think the traditional methods work. We say door knocking, that only worked in a time where people stayed home. We live in a busy world today, that's a waste of our time. What about those people who are sick? What about shut-ins? What about those who may have had the day off of work? Well, surely door-knocking works in that regard. What about handing out tracts? People say, well, we live in a digital world, a, a world full of technology. And I think that's true in a lot of ways because technology is really shaping the way we live. But it may be that we hand someone a track and it gets thrown away. But it may be the fact that we hand someone a track that says, why are there so many churches? And with that tract, we may get the gears turning. We may be able to spark an interest in their mind. And that may lead to a study. But it may be that we're more concerned with baptisms rather than convictions. Don't get me wrong, I want people to be, become members of the church. I want people to put on Christ in baptism. But we worry so much about getting people in the baptistry that when they get out, their hearts really weren't convicted because we didn't really try that hard when we were first studying with them. But if we can convict men, if we can show men, here is the way you need to live, then the baptisms will come. The conversions will come. But I can't tell you how many people have gotten out of the baptistry and gone right back into the world and done exactly what they had done. And it was because their hearts weren't truly convicted. Maybe the most obvious reason why evangelism doesn't work is because people just don't do it. We have a lot of people in the pews today who are, are kind of like Jonah, willing to jump ship in order not to evangelize rather than people like Isaiah. When God says, what am I going to do? Who am I going to send? Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 says, here am I, Lord, send me. We've got to get serious about evangelism. Because evangelism is really at the heart of Christianity. How would we once have become Christians if someone had not first evangelized us? Christ also lived and died for evangelism. He endured persecution. He endured death on a cross so that we might have something to say. We've not been given a message that's unrelatable and outdated. We've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 verse 3. But when we don't tell others what this book has to say for their lives, we're doing Christ and sinners a disservice. We want to talk about real evangelism tonight. 
Because we can sit here and we can talk about the different methods, the different avenues we can use to evangelize, but until we get to the heart of evangelism, I don't know that we're going to really be as effective as we could be. So tonight, we want to look at evangelism in three points from three chapters in your Bible. So I hope you brought your Bibles, and I hope you'll study along with us as we look through this lesson tonight. First point we want to make is real evangelism shows love for people. Real evangelism shows love for people. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 as we begin. Luke chapter 15. You know, there's a stereotype within the church of Christ, that, or within the religious world, that the church of Christ is a very cold, very harsh, very cruel people. And I think that in some instances that may be somewhat true. I've been in studies before and I've been talking to people before. And in my mind I'm saying, and even out loud I'm saying, why don't you see it this way? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Don't you get it? I forget to teach the truth in love. And because I didn't love that person enough to be patient with them, to be calm and show them what God's Word had to say, I may have impacted their ability to ever receive the Gospel. But Luke chapter 15 is a really important chapter. And when we think about Luke chapter 15, our, our minds probably immediately go to the parables that Jesus told. Mark Twain said that the stories in Luke chapter 15 are some of the greatest stories ever told. And I think that in some ways he may be right. But in this chapter, I don't think if we don't get the first two verses, we really don't understand this chapter. The, the Chapter 15 begins with this. There were many who were coming to hear Jesus, but the scribes and Pharisees grumbled against Him, saying, This man receives and eats with sinners. So he told them, verse 3, this parable. He tells them this parable because he's in the middle of the people who thought they were living righteous. He's in front of the people who thought they were doing what was right, but Jesus says you're missing one thing. You don't have the love for people that you need. We're going to see that in three of these parables. Our love in evangelism is seen, number one, in how we, in our determination. It's seen in our determination. Let's read verses 1 through 7 together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, but the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Notice that determination is seen in how he goes out to look for the sheep. And by the context, we see that this sheep wasn't just in the neighbor's backyard, but he's going to have to leave the, his other sheep in the open country, and he's going to have to go find this sheep. And that's going to take determination. But verse 5, does it say, if he finds it, he'll bring it home on his shoulders rejoicing. Well, my Bible says that when he finds it, he will bring it home rejoicing. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He's going to be determined to look and look and search for the sheep until he finds it, and he's going to bring it home. But I find something interesting about determination and the fact that he brings it home. Maybe you have a dog, and you were walking that dog one day, and that dog did not want to come home. And you're sitting there, and you're pulling at that leash, trying to get that dog to come home. And how often did that work? Well, it probably didn't work that often. You may have even gotten bit. But we need to understand something practically about our Christianity. I'm not using that example to call people who are outside the church dogs. But we're not going to get anywhere by yanking people's leashes. We're not going to get anywhere by forcing or pushing people somewhere. 
If we're really determined, what it's going to take is our love to go and talk to that person. And it may be that we have to get down on their level and talk to them and pick them up and take them home. We need to be people who are determined to seek the lost. We need to be people who are determined to have real evangelism. Well, let's look at the second story. Our love and evangelism seen in our determination. But number two, it's also seen in how we value people. Look at verses 8 through 10. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have the found, found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But let me give you some historical background. So these silver coins that the woman would have worn, history tells us would likely have been something the husband would have given his wife. These coins would have either been worn around the head, they would have been worn around the neck, or even around the waist. So when one of these becomes lost, that headpiece, that attire, had become misplaced. It didn't look right, it had become unorganized. She didn't want to go out in public with these coins and have one be missing. She values that coin so very much. What's the most valuable thing you own? Maybe it's your house, maybe it's your car, maybe it's something that one of your family members handed down to you. Something happened to that, what would your reaction be? How would you feel if something had happened to that? Well, just like this woman, it's not just, well, I I guess we'll find it sometime. It's utter panic. She lights the candle, as the Bible says. She sweeps the house and she seeks diligently till she finds it. And in addition to that, once she's found it, because it was so valuable... She calls together her friends and the neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found something that was lost. How do we value people who come to the Lord? How do we value souls? Because I'll tell you this, the majority of time I see a lot of people, when someone comes to one of these front pews, what happens is we go right right back out the front door. Verse 10 tells us that if we're trying to be like those in the heavenly places, we're rejoicing. We're not walking out the back door. We're coming down and we're hugging that person saying, I believe that you can do this. I'm here for you. We're here for you. We've got to value souls if we have true love and evangelism. There's a third story. The story of the prodigal son. Our our, our love for people and our love in in evangelism is seen in determination. It's seen in how we value people, people. But the third story, we see our love and evangelism in how we care for people. We see it in how we care for people. This is one of the most recognizable stories maybe that Jesus ever told. And this is a story where a son comes to his father and he says, give me what's due at the end of my life now. He goes and takes this money and he wastes it on riotous living, as your Bible might say. And he finds himself in a pig pen working for a citizen because no citizen would really give him anything. And he finds himself considering eating the pig slop, but he comes to his senses and he realizes the bread and to spare that was in his father's house. In this chapter, we see a story about a father's care. We see a father's care in the reception. Notice in verse 17 through 21. Look at verses 17 through 21. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
I have to imagine this scene in my mind. I see the father waiting every day as his son is lost, looking down the end of the road. Every time he hears something, is that my son? Is he coming back home finally? I've not heard from him. At least that's what the text offers for us. When he comes back, the father cares so much for his son, he runs to meet him, embracing him. The Greek there is the idea of hugging him to the ground because he loves his son so much. He cared so much for his son, he was longing for that time when his son would come back home. But we see a father's care in another way in this story. We see a father's care in rejection. We see a father's care in rejection. Look at verses 25 through the end. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, which has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells us that the older brother in this story is the Pharisees. These are the people who didn't have the love they needed to have. The older brother was angry in the field. What was precious and what had come back home, the brother said, I don't want any part of that. What happened at the beginning of the chapter? The people who were outcast of society, the sinners, came to Jesus. And Jesus accepted them. What did the Pharisees do? They said, we don't want anything to do with this. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you letting these people come and talk to you? Why are you sitting down at the table with these people? But in the story of the prodigal son, the father cared about the rejection. He could have let the older son just sit out in the field and sulk. But he knew it was important to tell the older son he didn't need to act like this. This was a time for celebration. And that's where we see the father's next care. We see the father's care in the rejoicing. Look in verses 21 and following. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. When the son comes back, the best is offered to him. I love the idea of when the son comes back, he says, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the text doesn't offer the father any response to the son. The son comes and tells him that, and the father says, bring the best. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the shoes. Put it on his feet. Because this person was precious to him. He cared so much for this son. We've got to have that care for people in the world today. Because if we don't, we're just like the Pharisees. We're saying, we don't want any part of you because you're not like me. We've got to have a true love in our evangelism. Luke chapter 15 teaches us that we've got to have a real love for people. Because if we don't have a real love for people, we're not going to be effective as evangelists. And we can be so much more effective when the world knows how much we love them. We want to move to a second point. Real evangelism shows love to people, number one. But it also shows the nature of God. It shows the nature of God. Be turning to Acts chapter 17, and I'll meet you there in a second. Acts chapter 17. 
there are a lot of people in the world who believe they know who God is. They believe they know the path for their lives. They think that they've got everything figured out. But the unfortunate reality is that that's not the case. Solomon said, there's a way which seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. Jeremiah said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10.23. Proverbs writer said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. There are so many people who don't know which way to go. And the only way we're to know how to go is if we understand who God is and His nature. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is at Mars Hill. He's at the Areopagus. And he's among the scholars of the day, the people who have everything figured out. He comes to them and notices that they're not living like they should. And Paul seeks to show them a solution. We're going to read kind of a lengthy section, but I think it's important for us to do to realize the whole section. If you're in Acts chapter 17, we're going to read verses 22 through 31. 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. And he made from one man of every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward Him, and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each of one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have even said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Notice how Paul approaches the situation. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. As I passed along and observed these objects that you're worshiping, I noticed this altar. It said, to the unknown God. That which you're worshiping in ignorance, unknowingly, here's what I'm going to tell you. Paul didn't come in stomping his feet, making fun of these people. He didn't say, look at what you're doing. This is foolish. You're here serving these idols. You're here worshiping these things. They don't speak back to you. They don't offer anything. He came in and noted their zeal. I perceive that you're trying to do what's right. But he gave them a solution. And the solution Paul had was to view the nature of God the correct way. And Paul mentioned so many things in this chapter, but I want to notice just a few of them. Paul noted God's generosity. Look at verse 24. He made the world and everything in it. Excuse me, God's sovereignty. He made the world and everything in it, verse 24. You know, if we can show people how great God is and how little they are in comparison, perhaps we can persuade men to see that they need to follow God. Maybe we can instill within them an attitude like Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah chapter 6. If we can get people to say, How great thou art, if we can get them to recognize the sovereignty of God, perhaps 
we can sway their opinions. But number two, Paul showed another attribute of God, another part of God's nature. Paul showed God's generosity. Verse 25, Since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. A point that can help us draw people to the family of God is by showing how good God is to all people. There's a stigma out in the world today that God is this God of judgment and this God of ugliness, but God rains blessing on the just and the unjust. And if we can show them how God's good to all people, we can show the blessings that God has for His own people. We talked about it this morning, Ephesians 1. We've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those blessings are specifically for people who are in Christ. We need to show people that they need to be in Christ to understand the full extent of God's generosity. But Paul also noticed this about God. Paul showed God's judgment. He showed God's sovereignty, His generosity, but he also showed His judgment. Because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Verse 31. Paul showed that there will be a time when there will be a separation of the left and the right. There will be a time where the sheep will be divided from the goats. And Paul says that there's going to be a judgment placed upon you. The judgment will be serious. It will be worldwide. There will be no escaping it. Because God's sovereign. And because... He's going to have a judgment day. The judgment that God has offered will be a day where Christ judges us. He'll judge people who have not lived right, and He'll also judge me and you for how we live in in, in the middle of those people who didn't live right. When was the last time you mentioned the judgment? When was the last time you, you told someone, listen, if you're living apart from Christ, if you're living apart from the plan that Jesus has in the New Testament, this is where you're going to end up. Because if we treat sin seriously, and if we treat souls with preciousness, we need to make sure we're doing that. If we can show the goodness of God, we have a chance at persuading man. We can show the seriousness of the judgment. If we can show people that God is going to judge everyone, we can show God's generosity and the fact that He has a special place for those people who decided to follow Him. We're at our final point this evening. Real evangelism shows the seriousness of sin. It shows a love for people. It shows the nature of God, but it also shows the seriousness of sin. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 3 as we conclude. Ezekiel chapter 3. In the religious world today, there's televangelists on almost every other channel. And they love to talk about the joy and the happiness in Christianity. And I think that's a, a great thing to talk about. We need to have more lessons like that. When was the last time you heard a televangelist talk about sin? Talk about hell. Well, it probably wasn't recently. There are congregations all around, even this building right here, who don't treat sin seriously. Go there and they'll say, well, all you have to do is say a prayer. All you have to do is live a good life, and sin doesn't really matter if you live a good life. You'll get to go to heaven. Or maybe I've even heard people say this. I went to the church and they said, come back at another time and we'll study with you about salvation. Because people within the religious world don't teach the message that Christ lays for us in the New Testament, the pattern He lays for salvation and being in a relationship with God, they really don't treat sin seriously. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel doesn't just talk to the wicked. He doesn't just talk to those people who have gone away and done what they wanted to do. He talks to you and me. And I'm ashamed to say, but he may step on our toes a little bit. 
Thousands of years ago, Ezekiel is prophesying about the responsibility of us and the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious, number one, because the righteous have a responsibility. Look in verse 17 of Ezekiel. Look at verse 17 through 18. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you surely shall die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hands. God's given us some responsibilities in these verses. He's given us a responsibility to watch. You are a watchman of Israel, Ezekiel. What are we watching for today? We're watching for something that causes harm. We're watching for something that is detrimental to man. Sin's the most detrimental thing that's ever occurred. It's corrupted man and it's corrupted the world, Romans chapter 8. Sin is serious and sin is destructive. We're watching for sin. But God's also given us this responsibility. He's given us a responsibility to warn, but He's also given us a responsibility a responsibility to watch, but also a responsibility to warn. Responsibility to warn. He says, if, you, if I say to the wicked, you surely shall die, you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked of his wicked way in order to save his life, that person's blood is going to be required at your hand. It's easy to get ahead in this verse, but notice how it begins. I, if I say to the wicked, if I say, who is the I? Is it Ezekiel? It's God. God says that if I say something and it doesn't get said, it's going to be serious. His blood is going to be on your hands. When the day of judgment comes, I don't want to be caught with blood dripping from my hands because I didn't mention Him to someone. I want Him to say to me, enter into thy reward, great and faithful servant. But sin is serious also because death is its result. Sin's serious because we have the responsibility, but it's also serious because death is the result. If you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, verse 19, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. This verse is pretty self-explanatory. If we deliver a message that the world needs to hear, and they don't listen to it, and they live their own way, we're not held accountable for that. They are. Notice what it says about the wicked. He will die. There will be no life. There will be no hope for this person. That's why I've got to say something to him. Because sin is so serious. Verse 20 says, Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because if you've not warned him, he shall die for his sins. His righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. There's a little bit of a shift in the audience in verse 20. He shifts from the wicked to the righteous. What happens if the righteous turn away from doing good? What happens if the righteous people turn and dedicate their lives to sin? Well, we've still got to warn them. Why do we have to warn the righteous? Well, because we're human. Humans make mistakes and humans can fall into things that they don't need to fall into. And that's why we have a responsibility to talk to them about it. But sin is serious, number three, because there's only one way for safety. Look at verse 21. If you warn the righteous person not to sin, 
and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. One way of safety is turning from sin and following God. But there's safety for two people in this verse. There's safety for the sinner. If he listens to what he said, he'll deliver his soul. He'll be saved. He won't have to worry about the judgment. He won't have to worry about destruction or death. But there's also safety for you and me. Because if I can tell others, this is the way you need to live, this is what the Bible says, and they listen, I save myself. I won't be held accountable for that person. When in the better land, before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If there is any lost soul there who may cry in deep despair, you never mention him to me. Never mention him to me. You helped me not the light to see. You saw me day by day. You knew that I was astray. But you never mentioned him to me. Do you have real evangelism this evening? Do you have the love for people that you need to have? You know, there's been times in my life where I haven't had it. I've lived in a life, even as a Christian, where I acted like God didn't even exist. Not always treated sin seriously. Maybe that's the case with you tonight. Maybe you've lived as a person that Christ wouldn't have you to live. And it's my prayer that if that's you tonight, if you've not mentioned Him to others, that you make that right. Maybe that you're not a Christian, though, tonight. Maybe that you see this part of the Christian walk. And you say, that's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to help evangelize. We'd love to have you on our team, but the only way you can do that is by following the pattern for New Testament Christianity. By believing Jesus as the Son of God, by hearing His Word, by understanding what it means to your life and understanding the seriousness of your sin, you need to repent. You need to say, what I've done is transgressed God's law. I've put myself apart from God. By confessing Jesus in front of this audience, you're able to be baptized for the remission of your sins. The slate is clean. There's no more sin on your account. What a blessing that is with Christ. Whether you need restoration this evening, whether you need dedication tonight, the Lord's invitation is open to you. Won't you come? As tonight we stand and as we sing.